This is episode number 341 with Principal Data Scientist at iRobot, Brandon Rohr. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today, and now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by my very own book, Confident Data Skills. This is not your average data science book. This is a holistic view of data science with lots of practical applications. The whole five steps of the data science process are covered from asking the question to data preparation to analysis to visualization and presentation. Plus, you get career tips ranging from how to approach interviews, get mentors, and master soft skills in the workplace. This book contains over 18 case studies of real-world applications of data science. It covers off algorithms such as random forest, k-nearest neighbors, naive bays, logistic regression, k-means clustering, Thompson sampling, and more. However, the best part is yet to come. The best part is that this book has absolutely zero code. So how can a data science book have zero code? Well, easy. We focus on the intuition behind the data science algorithms so you actually understand them, so you feel them through. And the practical applications, you get plenty of case studies, plenty of examples of them being applied. And the code is something that you can pick up very easily once you understand how these things work. And the benefit of that is that you don't have to sit in front of a computer to read this book. You can read this book on a train, on a plane, on a park bench, in your bed before going to sleep. It's that simple, even though it covers very interesting and sometimes advanced topics at the same time. And check this out. I'm very proud to announce that with dozens of five-star reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, this book is even used at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, to teach one of their data science courses. So if you pick up confident data skills, you'll be in good company. So to sum up, if you're looking for an exciting and thought-provoking book on data science, you can get your copy of Confident Data Skills today on Amazon. It's a purple book. It's hard to miss. And once you get your copy on Amazon, make sure to head on over to www.confidentdataskills.com where you can redeem some additional bonuses and goodies just for buying the book. Make sure not to forget that step. It's absolutely free. It's included with your purchase of the book, but you do need to let us know that you bought it. So once again, the book is called Confident Data Skills and the website is confidentdataskills.com. Thanks for checking it out and I'm sure you'll enjoy. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, everybody. Super pumped to have you on the show. Today is going to be a blast. I just got off the phone a couple of hours ago with Brandon Rohr, a person who I've been following for multiple years, someone who has had a massive, a massive impact on the space of data science and machine learning. Brandon is an educator, presenter. Uh, He's got a huge YouTube uh, channel with over 50,000 followers where he teaches people about deep learning, machine learning. He's got his own web school with a lot of courses, including free courses on machine learning called end-to-end machine learning. Uh, He's had an influence on thousands of people worldwide. So this was a huge honor to talk with Brandon and we had a fantastic conversation. And what did we discuss? So the question is, what will you learn about in today's episode? 
Well, we discussed a lot of things. We started with uh, Brandon's journey at MIT and how he did his master's and PhD there and how he's always been passionate for mechanical engineering and how that passion came together with a passion for data science and uh, data analytics. Then we talked about his work at Facebook, where he was a data scientist, as well as Microsoft, where he was also a principal data scientist. So you'll find out about his roles at both of those two tech companies. And then we'll talk about iRobot and what made him move to iRobot and how he's pursuing his passion, working on data science combined with robotics and what that means to him. And also then we moved on to some of your questions. So what I did with this episode is I asked on LinkedIn 24 hours before the episode, I asked to post any questions for Brandon and we got a huge response to that. And so we went through a lot of your questions uh, such as AutoML, deep learning, neural network architectures, explainable artificial intelligence, interpretable deep learning, uh, ET ETL pipelines, production feedback loops, future of robots, and many, many more. So this is going to be a podcast packed with value, lots of interesting things, including technical insights, career advice, predictions for the future, pretty much you name it, everything's in here. So without further ado, let's welcome onto the show, principal data scientist at iRobot, Brandon Rohr. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, super pumped to have you back on the show because today's guest is Brandon Rohr. Brandon, how are you going today? I think I am doing well. Thanks very much. It is great to be on the podcast, Kirill. I, I appreciate the invitation. Oh, I am so glad. I'm so glad. Like, uh, I've been looking forward to it. Like I told you before the episode, I actually had a dream about you on the podcast. That doesn't happen often. <laughs> Oh man, crazy. Like we first time I met you was way back in uh I think it was May 2017. You're doing a presentation at ODSC and your room was packed. Like the, the your room was designed I think like for 50 people. There's like 150 people who are sitting on the floor in the in the walkways and standing behind the walls. You couldn't even get into the room like that how that's how packed it was with people standing outside. That is, that was so great. I was so impressed. Like I got to get Brandon on the podcast. Finally, here we are. Um, it's so exciting. <laughs> it's I'm crazy. so happy that it's finally worked out. You know, with us uh, moving in separate circles and pursuing so many projects and interests, it's nice to have us be able to to uh, coordinate, and bring it together. Yeah, yeah, man. And um, and you live in Boston, right? That's correct. How long have you been there? Uh, going on seven years now. And Seven then years. there was another uh, five-year stint when I was in grad school here. So it really feels like home. <laughs> cool. That's cool. So you, you did you you went to MIT? Is that correct? That's correct. Oh man, I would I I I went to MIT, but only for <laughs> two hours. I just went for a tour. <laughs> uh, well, it takes how, a lot longer than others. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I I didn't. I wouldn't say like I I studied there or anything. Like like learned a lot. But how was um. How was it? Like, it's so, such a mysterious place, you know, like MIT is in, uh, some of the smartest people in the world come out of there. Like, tell us, like, how, how, how was it to study at MIT? Um, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. I, I came from, uh, Brigham Young University it was my undergraduate institution in mechanical mm -hmm. engineering and the jump to MIT for grad school, I was prepared for 
um, like goodwill hunting, you know, be, be blown away by everyone. Um, I would say though, that when I arrived, people were the average level of intensity and intelligence was maybe 25, you know, 40% higher, not double, triple what I was used to. So a lot of quite smart people, but still people and the Mm -hmm. professors very busy, um, very smart, very engaged, but still, you know, professors, regular people, and Mm. that there are similarly excellent and engaged and brilliant people at every institution, perhaps a slightly higher concentration at MIT, but they definitely don't have a corner on that market. Um, uh, The mystique is probably due more to, you know, marketing and social influences than, than other things, but I'm very grateful to have been there. And I learned a ton of things that might not have been as easy to learn someplace else. Hmm. What's that corridor you guys have? Like it's uh, the infinite corridor or something like that? Yes. Uh, there's a corridor that there's a whole bunch of uh, buildings, kind of the central complex that runs right under the two big domes that you've hmm. seen. If you've seen pictures of the campus, the infinite corridor is, I don't know exactly how long, probably short of a kilometer, but, but more than half a kilometer. And wow. um, there's a, a fun event called MIT Stonehenge. So there are two times in the year where right at sunset, the sun will shine from across the street through those big columns in the front door and shine down the length of the entire corridor. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, wow, interesting. So it's like uh, like the same effect as they have in Stonehenge where they like the sun shines through those arches, right? Or whatever they're called, like the stones. I think so. I don't actually know anything about Stonehenge, but it's some <laughs> alignment of architecture and astronomical phenomenon. Wow, very cool. Do you think it was designed like that? Probably was designed like that, knowing about MIT. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't put it past someone, but it is parallel to the river. So yeah. it may just be a happy accident. Okay, gotcha. So what did you study for your, um, um, so you're still mechanical engineering all the way, right? Even in your PhD? Straight through. So my background, my origin was as a child, I loved robots. I loved Mm. mechanisms. Um, Empire Strikes Back, Star Wars Episode 5. At the very end, Luke gets his bionic arm. And I'm like (laughs) 10 years old when I see that for the first time. And that's the coolest thing to me. And Mm. so so that becomes my professional goal. I want to make bionic arms for people. And Mm. so I kind of like... um, I did auto mechanics in high school. When it time, came time to go to college, I sought out a robotics uh, course and a way to study robotics and prosthetics. And then I got very lucky to work with Professor Neville Hogan at MIT, who mm-hmm. is a, a joint appointment with mechanical engineering and brain and cognitive sciences and had several projects around upper limb prostheses. So if you know, you were going to build Luke's arm in academia, that would have been the place to do it. Wow. Uh, well, I got to work on that. And then later for my PhD, uh, moved to the analysis of data generated by patients using robots for stroke rehabilitation. Okay, wow. Very, very interesting. And how did you enjoy that? I, I loved it. Um, mm. After doing a hardware project for my master's degree, I realized that if I wanted to do my PhD in less than 10 years, I needed to move to data and software. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was my first big data project. 
Um, it was 44 stroke patients using this robot several days a week for several weeks in a row, um, stacks and stacks of little zip drives, uh, maybe somewhere in the <laughs> tens of gigabytes of, of data. So it all fit on one hard drive. Mm. Now well, what years were these? This would have been like 2000. Uh, oh, yeah. Back then, that would have been uh, like big data. Yeah. Uh, so I, and I was working in Mat, uh, MATLAB, writing um, uh, kind of my own little custom database and file manipulation and um, going through and crawling through this tree of files and doing the same analysis on it and compiling them. And at one point, I literally had the lab wallpapered ceiling to floor with these eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper, each with a different plot on it. Hmm. Um, this and my advisor just encouraged me to just look at the data at the visualization he mm -hmm. said that he doesn't know any substitute or any shortcut for that and that experience has influenced a lot of my data analysis work since interesting is that the is that the pivotal point in your uh, life when you moved from robotics to data or like have you always kept the passion for the two at the same time um th for me they've they've become inseparable so that's mm. definitely when they merged for the first time. Um, I learned through that that we had lots of cool robotic hardware in the world. Um, at the time, um, Professor Kazaruni out at Berkeley had some really cool hardware projects going on. Other people had had similarly fantastic like robots articulated arms and walking. Um, the Leg Lab was doing some really cool things, which is now kind of morphed into Boston Dynamics. Um, I realized that the kind of the short pole in the tent was the software, the ability to control it. So I started to focus more on algorithms, more on controls, more on if you have a system that you don't have a good model of and where things might fail and things are sloppy, how do you control that well, like the human brain does with our bodies? And so that's kind of been the central theme of my both my professional research and then my kind of hobby research as I moved on and my day job became more data centric. Mm. Uh, so my, my move to iRobot most recently in this last April was motivated by that underlying, like undying, just excitement about robots. Yeah, that's, that's actually very, first of all, congratulations. That's, that's a Thank huge, event, and it makes like, like a lot of sense now. Um, uh, and you, so very interestingly, the interesting career path. Like, so you you worked as a data scientist at multiple organizations, including principal data scientist at Microsoft, data scientist at Facebook, and now you've moved to iRobot. Um, first of all, for those who don't know, like I had to, because uh, I don't live in the US and iRobot is not that popular in Australia. I just wanted to, uh, I need to freshen up on that. Could you, for our listeners who are not maybe familiar what, what, with what iRobot does, could you give us a, a quick uh, overview? What What is the company all about? Yeah iRobot makes robot vacuum cleaners and mops and lawnmowers, mostly mm. known for our vacuum cleaners. Um, there's about 8 million of these out in the world, in Europe, in Asia, in the US. And um, most of the vacuum cleaners are circular and um, somewhere around 12 or 14 inches across and about three, four inches high. And they move around and suck up dirt. and um, it's not too hard to find videos on the YouTube of them doing their job and getting into humorous situations and <laughs> often uh, being ridden by cats. 
<laughs> yeah. Is that is that the one that's called Roomba? Is that uh, an iRobot creation? That's the Roomba. Okay, gotcha. I've I've definitely seen that one and heard and actually some of my friends uh, had had that one. Um okay, so very interesting and uh a question that Ben Taylor. By the way, how do you know Ben Taylor? Uh Ben and I I don't remember how we originally got in touch, but it's um you know, friend data scientist of a friend and uh, he was passing through Boston and we had lunch together and we've uh, just kind of kept loosely in touch ever since. Of course, he's not, he leaves, he leaves a big footprint online. So it's easy to see what he's up to. And we exchange yeah. messages every once in a while. Yeah. It's, it feels like he knows everyone. <laughs> it's like that's everywhere he goes. Powers, I think. Yeah. That and, and skiing crazy mountains in Utah. That's, <laughs> that's staying alive. <laughs> okay. Um, so Ben, uh, rightly asked, uh, what, like, why the move from Facebook to iRobot? Like such a different, you know, different uh, field. And uh, from Microsoft to Facebook, like interesting, similar industry, I would say, similar kind of big tech companies. Moving from Facebook to iRobot, um, very different space, like at least from my perspective. Could you give some information on that? Like how did you make the decision to move from Facebook to iRobot? Yeah, so um, it was not an easy decision. I have to say at Facebook, um, there are several large groups of data scientists within Facebook. Um, some lean more heavily toward analytics. Some are building models, predictive models, time series models, anomaly detection models. Um, some are deep into machine learning stacks, machine learning engineering. Um, there's one particular group that I was associated with called infrastructure data science. We had the responsibility to try to help Facebook do what Facebook does while running out of available compute in the world. Um, the scale of what they do is so big, there's literally uh, a struggle to find not only uh, processors, but RAM and even electrical power in some areas to, to do wow. this. And so any insight, you know, if a data scientist can run an analysis and say, hey, if we were to cache this type of file in these locations, we could cut costs here by 2%. That 2% might be many millions of dollars. So it's mm. worthwhile to have a team focused on things like that. Mm -hmm. um, within that group, there was a, a chunk of us focused on connectivity, which is how do we help get the internet to people who don't have it yet? Um, mm -hmm. And then a small part of that that I got to work on is how do you actually help get electrical power to people who don't have it yet? So mm. I got to work with satellite imagery, making uh, models of medium voltage electrical power lines in Africa, a model mm. that has since extended to the rest of the world. And um, super satisfying technically, very proud about the impact that it had. And my teammates were spectacular. I really enjoyed working with the team there. Uh, the only thing probably that could have drawn me away from all that was the opportunity to work full-time with robots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Angela Bassa, who is a phenomenal data scientist and an unbelievably skilled and um, empathetic manager, she talked to me a few times and said, hey, I think that you would really enjoy it here. And um, she was able to not only, um, you know, counter all of my, I don't know, you know, uncertainty, but also just convince me that the vision of the team that she was building 
And the quality of the work they were getting to do there was compelling. And I interviewed, I loved all the people that I got to meet, the work that I uh, saw being done. And so I, I made the jump. It wasn't easy, but I made the jump and I haven't looked back. Nice. Wow. What a cool story. Following your passion. That is so cool. So what, what, do, what do you do now at iRobot? So at iRobot, there are about 8 million robots out in the world. In, um, it's, it's crazy. Homes. It feels like when you, when you said that the first time, sorry, it sounds like 8 million robots. It's like they could just take over the world. Like if they are pre-programmed <laughs> in a way, <laughs> um, uh, like that movie, iRobot, right? There's a movie, iRobot. There is a movie, iRobot, both of which are references to some classic science fiction. Um, uh, but yes, uh, there is definitely a large number of these Roombas out there. Um, I think if they band together to try to take over the world, the, the most they could do is, is really make it cleaner, um, which <laughs> could only be a good thing. Um, but yeah, there are about 8 million of them, which coming from robotics research, if you have one robot in the lab, and you can get it to do the same thing three or four times in a row. Like, that's good. You write it up, you get your PhD, you're done. Like, mm -hmm. it's, that's, that's an exaggeration, but not by much. Mm -hmm. um, having, if you really want to do machine learning on physical hardware, you either need to have a very reliable piece of hardware or lots and lots of instances of that working at different, um, in different locations to kind of like, understand how varied the world is mm -hmm. i don't know of any other realm where there's this rich of a set of data of identical or nearly identical platforms out in the world bumping around making mistakes getting stuck uh figuring things out um so what i get to do then is with this information um our goal is to help these robots do their job better so I get to look for, hey, where's something where it's not working quite as well as we would like? And mm -hmm. do that by, you know, writing SQL queries and Python scripts and making visualizations and trying to figure out, like, in aggregate, what are these robots doing? Where do mm -hmm. they have a tough time and how can we help them do it better? Um, there are other teams within iRobot that focus on the hardcore navigation algorithms, like, hey, here's my mental picture of the layout of this room where exactly do i need to go and how often do i need to turn and what's my path to clean it but what's so cool about the physical world is it's uh different every time there's someone left a sock in the floor there's a boot <laughs> that gets stuck in the mm -hmm. roller there's a rug that's just a little too fluffy that's the robot doesn't know quite what to do with it it gets stuck under the edge of the counter and so the, a real robot in the real world has to figure out how to handle all this stuff. And um, it's very, very frustrating if your job is to make it perfect. But it's really exciting if you're a data scientist looking to make something better because there's lots of opportunities to, to look for these and then to be able to find ways to improve it. And then knowing that this turns around and goes out to literally millions of people's homes around the world and, and makes their owners' lives just incrementally a little bit easier, gives them mm -hmm. one small thing not to worry about. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Man, love it. Love it. If anybody listening has a Roomba, <laughs> next time you look at it, think of Brandon. <laughs> 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 so how do you get the data? Do they, is it like Tesla? Do they sync up overnight or something like that? Um, 
when you get a Roomba, mm-hmm. um, you open it up and you have the option to connect it to Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do like a Tesla, it can get software updates then on a regular mm-hmm. basis. So mm-hmm. as we understand how to make them work even better, they download the software and are able to uh, to incorporate those new strategies. And then um, summaries of their activity um, get uploaded as well to the cloud. Mm-hmm. And so like, cool. for instance, if it gets stuck, um, information about, hey, I got stuck here. And, um, you know, this is what was happening just before I got stuck. That gets uploaded as well. So uh, that that data then becomes kind of the pool of information that we get to draw from to try to make them better. Hmm. And it would be very interesting because you're very limited to, like, I can imagine a Roomba getting stuck, but it, you don't see that. Like, it doesn't have a camera on it. Like, you just, you you get the sensory data of you know the movement and things like that so you have to recreate somehow that environment that it was in without any visuals is that is that about right like uh, my imagination on how how your work plays out um so actually on current roombas there is a camera it faces it faces upward and Mm -hmm. it uses the corners of the room the ceiling to navigate kind of like uh you can imagine navigating by stars and so um, it does that. But that data uh, is not data that gets reported or that I use. Mm-hmm. Um, our philosophy, uh, another thing that really excited me about iRobot is um, we have a strong commitment to privacy and security of data. And mm-hmm. part of that philosophy is we don't collect it um, unless we absolutely have to. We don't keep it unless we have to. And the, the have to is all driven by what will make the, the person who owns the Roomba, what will make their experience better. So mm-hmm. it's uh, the default is don't collect it. If you collect it, don't keep it. If you keep it, don't analyze it. Always doing the minimum to, to get there. So, um, so to your point, you're right. We don't have imagery. We don't, we're not able to do like, um, uh, for the work that I'm doing, I'm not mm-hmm. doing any any deep learning, any anything like that. It's very, um, uh, very much more simplistic, and really taking advantage of the fact that there are so many of these, so that the patterns that we look for they might be a little more subtle, but we've got the numbers to mm-hmm. uh, to pull them out where we might not be able to if we just had a few dozen. Very interesting comment about privacy. I, I love when companies do that. Really respect it. That that's that's the way to go. And um, you know the implementation of GDPR in Europe, fantastic uh, example of that. But as you know, companies in the US don't really have to follow that. I guess because it's the European legislation. But companies that choose to have similar norms, amazing. Um, wanted to ask you. You said you don't really do deep learning. What what kind of methods do you use or a- approaches do you use in your work right now at iRobot? Um, let's see, I am afraid that I can't go into fine detail, but I can give you, uh, generally, um, I do a lot of visualization. So mm-hmm. the robots data is spatial, you know, they mm-hmm. move around and different things happen at different positions. Um, and it also happens in time. So mm-hmm. going from, you know, like a, a big table representation where, um, every event is a row and every, 
piece of information is in a column, it can be hard to see what's going on. Yeah. If you turn around and put that into a picture or even take it one step further and turn it into a video, a picture that changes over time, then patterns pop out that you wouldn't be able uh-huh. to see otherwise. And so, so far, my biggest contribution at iRobot has been taking data and you know gathering the two or three pieces that answer the question I'm trying to answer right now and turning it into pictures. Very um, cool. Yeah, yeah. It's And it's been pretty satisfying to do something that when, when someone who's been working with the data for a while, they see that, they go, oh, you know what? I always suspected that was going on and now yeah. I know for sure. The power of visualization, isn't it? Yeah. Crazy. It's, it's pretty shocking. It's, um, I, I don't think that it's always fully appreciated, but it's something that when you are trying to answer a specific question using data, um, it, it usually does the job. Not always, yeah. but it's definitely my first stop. Okay. And uh, you, what's your tool of choice, Python, or do you use some uh, BI platform for that? Yeah, Python, Matplotlib. I like, um, I like fine-grained control, and nice. uh, that gives me fine-grained control. Seaborn? Cib- uh, nope. <laughs> just, <laughs> just raw Matplotlib. <laughs> Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, um, all right. So t- tell me this: like moving, moving, uh, or shifting gears a little bit. Like what I'm curious about is, you sound like a very dedicated, hardworking, passionate um, MIT PhD with uh, experience and interest in robotics and data, and like you're doing everything right. You're building a career. Everything's going great. At the same time. If we look at your life online and just in the data science community, you're like one of the top influencers. You're, you're like people pile into rooms when you're presenting. People follow you online. People are always asking you questions. Whenever like <laughs> I mentioned your name on LinkedIn, so many people are like, yes, Brandon, Brandon, Brandon. How did you become a data science influencer? Uh, totally by accident. It was not a goal. <laughs> um, I, when I worked at Microsoft, uh, I was on a, a really great, a team of really great data scientists. Um, incidentally, one of whom, Danielle Dean, I work with now at iRobot. And, uh, and this team, our main job was to build prototype systems for companies who were considering using Microsoft technologies. And this included taking their data and um, doing a proof of concept solution often with a machine learning model um it was a challenge and it still is a challenge to communicate with people who are new to it what is machine learning what can it do um what can't it do what's not a good candidate for a machine learning problem um if you are new to some of these tools what algorithm might you use to solve a particular type of problem and not because i was any kind of an expert um i've never taken a machine learning course um, I just started writing up these rules of thumb and these guides that I knew were incomplete and I knew were, um, you know, not entirely accurate all the time, but that were a useful starting point for people who are completely new to it to help them get oriented. Um, there mm-hmm. was a, an, a, uh, what algorithm should I choose cheat sheet that I went out there that went out and got a lot of views. There was a, um, uh, like 
what question or what type of algorithm answers what question, you know, really basic stuff like that. But if you're trying to get oriented, uh, kind of useful signposts. Mm -hmm. I found that I really enjoyed being able to take something that previously had been mysterious to me through the process of writing it, get it clear in my mind, and then see other people who I could tell from their reaction had also, it had seemed mysterious and scary and out of reach and to have them be like, Oh, so that's what that means. Mm. And, um, some of them, like the, the reactions can be quite emotional, even like I was afraid I would not be able to under, understand this, mm. but now I do. <laughs> I'm so grateful mm. for that. Um, and, uh, and I've, found that I have enjoyed doing that. And so a lot of the things that I write or create, uh, for instance, there are some videos on YouTube describing how um, different types of neural networks work that get a lot of a lot of views and a lot of comments because they break it down with a very intuitive example and give people a chance to see one nut and one bolt of this system at a time and see how it fits together. And yes, it glosses over a lot of the fine details and a lot of the bells and whistles. But, you know, it's like walking into your high school classroom and you see the cutaway of the internal combustion engine in auto shop. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, that's what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you don't know everything about computer control of ignition timing and things like that. But you kind of have a sense like it's not magic anymore. And um, I love being able to make it not magic for people so that more and more anyone who wants to can get into it. Mm, yeah. I watched some of your YouTube videos myself about you, you explained deep learning. Um, who like a while ago I was watching your video about, I think convolutional neural nets. That was really cool. How you explain the, um, yeah, the convolution operation itself and some other stuff. Uh, yesterday I checked out your, how back propagation works, that new video you have about the shower head. That was really fun how you explained the uh, derivatives w- through, <laughs> through shower balls. <laughs> that, yeah, Thank some very, you. Some very Thank in- you. innovative approaches. Uh, really cool. And, um, and uh, yeah, so how, like, how do you keep contributing to, to people? So now you do YouTube videos. Do you still do those um, like write-ups? So I, as more and more people viewed videos and uh, followed me on LinkedIn and and um, uh, to a lesser extent on Twitter, I thought, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, I can do stuff to get more views. You know, people will really want to see this or want to know about this. And usually whenever I have done something thinking that it will get a lot of attention, I put it out there and it, you know, and it doesn't get so much. And I realized that that's, that's not the game I want to play. Like, I just find it so much less satisfying. And I've realized that the North Star, the guiding principle is, what am I excited about this week? You know, what am I interested in? What am I curious about? Most importantly, what do I not understand yet that's kind of like a burr in my saddle and I, I need to figure out what that is? Um, and depending on the topic, I either put it into a static web page, like a blog post, or I'll make a video of it and put it on YouTube. Or um, there's a critical mass of this material now. I put together a an online school called End-to-End Machine Learning that goes through a few case studies using different machine learning algorithms, 
to solve a problem, starting with raw data, going through the all of the work of cleaning it, doing feature extraction, understanding what problem we're trying to solve, what deciding what algorithm to use, getting a result, and then making sure that the final thing is in a form that we can use. And so depending on what it is I want to do, I choose a different form for it. I'm trying to unify it and make it all accessible through this end-to-end machine learning school, though, so that someone who wants to say, hey, what's, what's Brandon up to this week can go there and see what's new. Love it. And I've, heard, I've read some really uh, high commendations from students who've taken your courses there and uh, uh, have you know, become successful and learned new stuff. And what a, what a great way to contribute to the community. It's, it's super exciting. Like we, we create courses at uh, Super Data Science as well. And I think like that's just for me personally, it's the apogee of putting my knowledge that's the right word, <laughs> but basically it's a culmination of putting, uh, of learning something is when I can teach it, is when I can like put it together and yes. share it. And and that's the best way, right? Like why not uh, document it? And hey, hey, like sometimes I just go and take my own courses that I recorded two years ago because I forgot <laughs> something. <laughs> that's, that's one of the major functions of the post that I put up there. So I can remember what it was that I, that I figured out how to do eight months ago. Yeah. Um, it's so true, though. I will think that I understand something. And when I go to write it up and explain it, or when I go to code it up and explain the code, I realize that I was wrong. <laughs> so yeah. it's not until I can get the full explanation out in a way that, um, you know, that I'm satisfied with, that I then feel comfortable. It's like, okay, I, I get this, at least for well, for now, yeah. I get this well enough. Yeah. And it's, it's really tests your integrity. Because like, when I'm recreating a course, I like I'm I'm uh, recording this video and then like let's say like a section of three or four five videos then I get to video number three everything's prepared and then I find this like one thing that is like oh wait hold on that's that's not right I thought it was going to be this way but it's this way uh and then you're like on one hand you could gloss over it and just like be like okay forget about it don't need to mention it we'll do it another way but then it really like sticks with me and like borrows in my head and I, I just can't I know I won't be able to let it go so I spend like another day or two days like sorting it out and those five videos turn into 15 videos because <laughs> I have to get to the bottom of this thing for myself yeah, it's uh, interesting it is true it is true and the other part of that is even when you're not exactly wrong there's like oh, I could have done it better mm. and mm-hmm. oh yeah it, it's a real struggle for me to release things but the best advice I have like for, for past me and future me is get it to the like A minus, the 90% level, and then just get it out there and move on, mm. move yeah. on to the next thing. And um, yeah. without that, yeah. like if you want to get it to the 99 plus percent level, it's like I, I would never release anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, there's a saying, done is better than perfect, right? <laughs> yeah. Better, better done than perfect, but not done. <laughs> Um, Which that takes a thick skin on the internet because there are uh, non-trivial mistakes in everything that I've posted, and YouTube viewers are not shy about pointing (laughs) those out. Yeah. And so my my mental like uh, getting psyched up is like everything that I say is wrong, or at Mm -hmm. least at the very least it's incomplete. And Mm -hmm. if someone points out how, then that's great. That's just fine. But I already know that I'm making a lot of mistakes. And then kind of after taking that deep breath, I can 
go through and and let it go into the world. That's true. That's very true. Um, all right. So what I wanted to do next is, um, as you as you saw, and uh, our listeners don't know about this. Not many don't know, but I'm going to. That's why I'm going to describe it a bit now. Um, I started this thing where I posted a message on LinkedIn for anybody who wants to ask you questions. I said, you got questions for Brandon Rohr, post them below. And this was 24 hours ago. In 24 hours, this is crazy. In 24 hours, this post has gotten, let me get the exact number, 29,887 views, 145 reactions, and 25 comments. So there's a lot of material for us to go through. How are you feeling about this? You ready to answer some questions? Yeah, yeah, bring it on. All right, okay. So we've got some questions. We'll start with the technical ones. Your, <laughs> your favorite type. Um, Kate Strachny asks, I'd love to hear Brandon's thoughts on automation in machine learning. What is your, what are your thoughts on like AutoML and in general, uh, will machine learning be able to do itself? Yeah. Um, so, uh, for those not familiar, AutoML is a movement to take the process of going from data to model and, and making that automatic. So the what model is selected, how it's trained, everything just kind of happens. Um, I think that it's really cool. It highlights the ability to which the ability to, to choose a model is actually not the hardest part of data science. So it does take the um, one portion of the process and makes it pretty automatic. That's, um, that is useful. That is good for getting an 80% solution to 80% of the problems and will probably be something that someday is like the, um, if a, a custom machine learning model is a, you know, super tuned race car, then, you know, the, the Toyota Corolla that gets you to the grocery store and back, like that's an auto ML model for a lot of things, it'll be good enough. Um, the I don't think that custom ML work will ever go away, though, because uh, data is so variable. Its quality is variable. There are always, every data set I've looked at has weird things I didn't expect, multiple missing value indicators. Um, it's supposed to be a numerical value, but some of them are strings. Um, if they are free entry, like text free entry, then forget about any kind of uniformity. Like you're going to have every weird thing you can imagine and then some. Um, interpreting data is also challenging. Even with good column names, it's hard to know exactly what data in a table means unless you measured it or talked to the people who measured it and know exactly what it means. And knowing how to interpret it requires knowing something about the world and how all the pieces fit together. Um, right now, that's outside the scope of AI. That's something that we need humans for. So for custom machine learning models, um, automation is not going to do away with that. Um, I expect that it will have a small and slowly going, growing role going forward. Research on AutoML, though, is really instructive because it helps us see these places where, oh, you know, here's the easy part and here are the parts that are really hard. You know, maybe we should invest time in making tools that do 
feature creation and feature selection because that's something that humans spend a lot of time on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So the domain knowledge component is something that's missing because I was going to ask you like what if what if humans just do <laughs> it's like do the boring data preparations and then machines do the fun uh, machine learning model selection but I, I see your point that you do need to understand more about like you can add more value if you understand the underlying business principles yeah uh, mm -hmm. it, in theory like you any type of relationship is learnable given the tools that we have right now though there are only certain types of relationships that tend to be learned well. For instance, neural networks, you know, they tend to learn which linear combination of things tend to occur together or tend to be predictive. Um, that's just one of, you know, very many types of, of um, interactions or features that you could build from them. The ability to craft good features, especially when you have less than unlimited data, um, relies on intuition and good world models. And um, I don't see humans getting out of that loop anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, there's a follow-up question on AutoML from uh, Lakshmi Nara Narasimha. <laughs> Given the divided opinion of usefulness of machine learning in real-life business scenarios, um, particularly in regulated businesses, how do we make it acceptable to business users? Like if you want to Basically, if you're a, you're a proponent of AutoML, how do you make it acceptable? Yeah. Um, so my my thoughts on this are only my thoughts and opinions. I don't have a lot of experience in this directly. I expect that it will be the same as with any type of selling any type of algorithm to business deciders. Um, humans being what we are, we have to build trust in a thing, whether that's a person making a decision or a process or a machine making a decision. And so if it's an important decision that the business decision makers care about, then they're probably going to need to see a track record of good decisions being made by this system over time, uh, things that they feel like they can um, understand. And then after a while, um, the trust will be automatic. And then it'll be just kind of like, uh, don't don't talk to me about why this is good. Like, just get it out there. Like, of course we trust it. Like, this algorithm's been doing good for us for eighteen months now. And you know, the data scientists will say, like, yeah, but we've only tested like point one percent of the corner cases. And the business <laughs> decision maker will say, like, who cares? It's been great. It's going to keep being great. Um, mm -hmm. And so it'll humans being what we are, that that'll switch from I don't trust it to like it's a no brainer. I trust it with my life really really quick. But I think that um, no amount of analysis will buy that trust. Uh, it can only be done through kind of a track record. Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting point of view. Uh, moving on to, we talked about a bit about data preparation. Uh, Samim Ekram asks, what's the biggest challenge you face in making an ETL pipeline? For those who don't know, ETL is extract transform load. That's uh, basically the data prep component. Um, having Having made a handful, but not hundreds, take my observations with a grain of salt. Um, ETL pipelines um, take data from one place in one format and change it into another format and join it with other data sources. Um, the challenges that I see that occur are that every time that data format is a little bit different, the representation even of like a floating point number might be different. Um, definitely the 
code to get it from one representation or one storage location into another so you can join it with things will tend to be custom code unless you're doing the exact same thing that you've done before you'll have to roll it from scratch and because there are so many subtle ways in which data can be different than what we expect it leaves you doing a lot of um, inspection of the data trying to make sure that it's if you assume that the data is is malicious, is adversarial, and is out to trick you into doing something silly, um, that probably will set you up well because that's how it behaves. Mm-hmm. And so ETL is the process of checking, you know, behind all the bushes to make sure tricks aren't hiding and waiting to spring out and grab you, and then kind of testing it again and again and making sure it runs pretty smoothly. And then, even then, there are the things that show up later. So putting some kind of observability, the ability to monitor it, the ability to know when it breaks, because it will break at some point, um, the ability to see what went wrong and to figure out quickly how to fix it. So it's just, um, it tends to be fragile and building something that's robust takes a lot of effort. So unless you're doing the exact same thing over and over again, it's just, um, uh, it takes a lot of careful thought. Mm. Uh, it's a great, great way of uh, presenting it as a data is out there to get you. You got to be careful. Uh, when uh, to your point, when I was working at Deloitte, we were building uh, data pipelines with uh, through SSIS, and um, one of the things that was ingrained in the procedures that we were doing was Q and A checks. Like you have to be doing Q and A checks. Like how many rows did you have before the load at the very start? How many rows do you have at the end of the load? What's the distribution of your variable? What is the average value? What I know? Have you checked uh, any shift in the final bottom row? Has it you know? Has it have the columns shifted in the final column? Has you know like integrating those Q and A checks along the way and at the very end can save you from so much headache. Oh yes, that's that's a good uh, example from the trenches. Mm-hmm. Excellent practice. I agree. Um, I love the variety of the questions. Check this one out. So Prakash Araon asks from the opposite side of, you know, like the whole data science uh, project life cycle. So we just talked about the beginning, the ETL. Now Prakash asks about the end. What are the best practices, design principles to create feedback loop in production after the model is deployed? Oh, um, I can't say that I have a sharp set of best practices in mind. Um, there are some things that I have seen work well and not well. Um, so the the not well is the, hey, the model runs and ship it and cross your fingers and wait, you know, just wait till you get bug reports. <laughs> um, that's <laughs> that's a rest. It, it will fail and it's not a matter of if. Um, let's see. I think that uh, with that assumption, if you assume that it will fail and knowing how important it is, like when it does fail, how soon you need to have it back online, that will help you know how quickly you need to be able to respond. And so how finally you need to monitor what's going on. Um, the thing that is trickiest to communicate um, when building a data product like that, like a model and deploying it, is that it's not a... Um, you know, I built a birdhouse and you put it out in your backyard. It's I built this thing and it's but it's going to continually decay. It's going to fall apart. 
because the data is always changing and the platform that it's on is always changing and the traffic's always changing. Mm -hmm. um, and so it will require care and feeding. Um, it'll require at the very least checking in on it once in a while. And whenever starting and planning a project like that, um, it's helpful to plan in, have a plan in place to be able to um, keep an eye on it and keep it up after it's out there. Um, uh, there are other sources that are, that are better than me about how exactly best to do that. But if, as long as you're thinking about that, that's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Love it. Totally, totally love it. Um, questions about deep learning coming up, your favorite topic. <laughs> you got so many <laughs> videos on deep learning. Okay. Uh, I really like this question. I even put a heart next to it. How to fine tune CNN uh, or mask C mask R CNN, especially for design problem? How do we add less or more pooling, dilation, padding, layers? How can I know which path to take? And the question is by Syed Daniel Khalik. Um, so I have a confession. I've never actually implemented a convolutional neural network. Um, mm. I have a video that describes how it works that it has a lot of views but I haven't coded one up from scratch. That's actually going to be the next course in end-to-end -end machine learning. The next thing on my list, so we're going to do it together with the students. Fantastic, um, sounds exciting. Um, that said, the bigger question of how do you tune your neural network to fit your problem, how do you get the best performance you can out of it, is um, it's related to hyperparameter tuning and um, neural architecture search it's this larger problem of uh, a neural network has so many knobs that you can dial, so many things that you can adjust. You know, it's a big box of Legos and there's so many different ways that you can put it together. How can you know that you've done it the best way? Um, the extreme answer to that for any really hard optimization problem like this is to try every single possible way and compare them. Mm -hmm. That's not practical. That's never going to happen. No. And so um, the falling back from that then, the next best answer is to, well, let's try a few different ways and compare them and go with the best one. Um, that's where we're at in neural networks as a community. Um, a lot of the practices that we have and the tools that we use are come from uh, you know, a grad student had this idea, they tried it out, it worked pretty well, they wrote a paper, some other people adopted <laughs> it, and it kind of became common practice. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine all the space of all possible neural network designs as like this jungle, we have a few thin tracks that we've hacked through the jungle with machetes, most of it is unexplored. Mm -hmm. Um and you can spend as much time as you want. It's an easy rabbit hole to fall down to, fall down into, to uh, sit there and change this and try this and tweak that and see what makes things a little bit better. Um, in the course, actually, that I am two thirds of the way through creating right now for the end to end machine learning school, we're doing that with an autoencoder. So we mm. start by using backpropagation to train the weights of the individual layers. But then we start to take a step back and say, well, how can we be sure that we're using the best activation function, the best optimizer, uh, the best learning rate, the, 
the right number of layers and the right number of nodes in each to get the very best, um, very best performance. And that, again, it's, I actually think it's pretty cool because we can't try every possible way. We have to use some intuition. We have to do some trial and error. And um, we rely on a model that we have, that we build in our brains of how all this stuff fits together and how it works. So the human element is still necessary. Um, that said, as part of this course, uh, we did some optimization. So once you have some things that you want to adjust, but you don't have nice derivatives for, you can't do backpropagation anymore. So you have to use other methods. So there are hyperparameter tuning optimization methods. Um, and so we develop a new one from scratch just to show that they're not actually all that bare, uh, all that scary. Um, it, it's basically just some semi-intelligent way to keep trying new things until you get tired of trying things and then keep the best one. Mm. Um, so that's the, that's the short uh, summary of the answer to this is there's no way to know for sure if you've got the best one, but try a bunch of things and uh, go with the one that works best. Mm. Uh, speaking of your school, uh, Ehsan asks, uh, I'll just read it out. Could you please ask uh, Brandon's idea about possible approaches to look into interpretability in deep learning models? And I'll just like follow, like add to that. Are you going? Are you planning actually on releasing a course maybe on end-to-end -end machine learning about interpretability of machine learning or uh, deep learning models? Yeah, um, interpretability is something that I. Um, I, I feel strongly about it is if what we do is we take a black box model off the shelf, we say, use a framework, call a function, do some training, do some testing and publish the model, but we don't have a mental picture of what it's doing. That's really unsatisfying to me aesthetically. Mm -hmm. And it also is hard to know how to make it better. We're stuck in this place where we're just blind. We're in this jungle, but we're wandering around and we don't know which direction to go. Mm -hmm. um, so, for instance, in the course that um, it, in the course that I'm working on right now with an autoencoder, I took the time before we even started. There's a whole separate course where we build a visualization of the autoencoder, showing for every node in every layer what effect it has on the output. Um, so this is one type of interpretability. You can say when this node is active, it will tend to generate this pattern in the output. Mm -hmm. um, there are other things we might want to know about the network, but this at least gives us an intuition of, hey, when, when these three nodes are active, I can almost picture what the output should be. And if I want an output that looks like image I have in my mind, here are the nodes that I would expect to be active to make that happen. And you can see things like, hey, these three nodes, they all have identical impacts on the output. Like there's redundancy there. Um, that immediately helps you understand what's going on in the neural network a little bit better. And, and you can start thinking about, oh, well, how might I, if I wanted to make it more efficient, how might I reduce that redundancy? What type of regularization should I look into? Um, so the very first thing I do, the, the pattern in all of the algorithms that I implement and talk through in videos and in courses 
is to do some kind of a visualization of what's going on. Um, that's also because I tend to think about things visually as, as pictures or objects. And so doing that just gives me an intuition of what's happening there. Mm. Um, a separate take on that question, interpretability um, can also be taken to mean um, when an algorithm makes a decision, um, it also spits out a justification for that decision. Um, for instance, if there's an algorithm that says, hey, uh, your loan is either accepted or denied based on this algorithm, instead of just giving the answer, also giving, and here's why. We came to, here were the factors that fed into that. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little bit different than understanding how the algorithm functions, but it's very important if you're a decision maker then trying to implement the, um, the outcome of that model. Uh, and that's something that I really feel strongly about too, especially as we are concerned about models that may have hidden or indirect sources of bias. We want to be able to avoid that. It's nice to be able to get a little bit more of a window into what's going on inside. And um, it raises the bar for what it means to be a machine learning engineer. Mm -hmm. Well, in that sense, the best I've seen is from convolutional neural nets when they take different layers and visualize what the what it would look like at that part of the convolutional neural net, like where the, what the image is broken down into there. And yeah. you can kind of, you can kind of tell, yeah, you know, that like, that's, that's looking at the ear of the dog. That's looking at the nose or, or the whiskers of the cat. Like what, what areas are highlighting uh, lighting up, but it's much harder to do for a, like an, a non-visual uh, use case. Yeah, it is. It really is. And it requires um, quite a bit of creativity. That's something that I enjoy is, trying to come up with ways to make pictures of what's going on when the original data may not be in a pictorial form. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, here's another good question. Uh, you like, so the outer encoder you, you spoke, speaking about, as I understand, it's like, uh, the number of nodes in your layers slowly decreases. You have a bottleneck and then slowly increases back out. So through that bottleneck, you have to kind of like, um, compress, compress your inputs and then decompress them. And that way you have kind of like a kind of thinking about it, like as a zip, a zip file of your. Yeah, inputs. that's exactly right. Yeah. So Joe asks, is there a way to design a legitimate cheat sheet that defines use cases for stitching together various neural network, neural network architectures? Cause that's just like one of the ways to, uh, create a neural network architecture. There's like plenty, like hundreds of other ones that uh there's even this this uh visualization the the neural network zoo or something like that. have you seen that one that, yes yeah yeah the neural funny. network zoo is kind of fun because it has a graphical representation so that it can take you know this really diverse set of neural networks and turn them all into um the same kind of graphical representations you can compare and contrast between them um it's pretty abstract i actually have a hard time getting from <laughs> that how they work um yeah. but joe's question is is important because there is a danger we have a handful of well-used of often used data sets 
they are useful for benchmarking machine learning algorithms because we can compare like, well, my algorithm got this score on it and yours got that score. So, mm-hmm. you know, we know which one is, is the better performer. Um, that's solving one particular problem on one particular data set and too much emphasis on that leads to an over specialization and leads us to start doing things that work really well for that data set, but may not work for another data set, say images of a different resolution or with a different number of categories or with um, architectures with a different number of layers. Um, we can overfit to very narrow problems and very narrow data sets. Um, so if someone is coming to a new problem fresh for the first time, the question of, well, what architecture do I use? You know, no one has solved this before. I don't have a baseline to start from and make incremental changes to. Where do I start? Um, that's the type of cheat sheet that when I was at Microsoft, I drew up the first version of that for some common regression and classification algorithms. Um, and on that chart, you know, neural networks just represented one bubble among many, you know, decision trees and linear regression and logistic regression. Um, but it would be helpful to have something like that focused on neural networks since they've been getting so much attention over the last 10 years. My vision is that machine learning tools are very much like uh, tools in a toolbox. Um, like a hammer and a screwdriver and a pair of pliers, they solve different problems. And um, yes, if you're creative, you can use a wrench as a hammer and a screwdriver and any number of things. Um, you can use convolutional neural networks to solve any problem you want if you're willing to bend them hard enough. But um, different tools are suitable for different problems. And I anticipate that rather than having uh, general solutions to entire classes of problems, we'll have more specific solutions that might say, hey, here's something like an app. Um, If you feed it uh, a few dozen images and half of them are of something, you know, like, like the hot dog, not a hot dog app, half of them are of something you want to identify and half of them are some other thing, then it can learn that really quick and it can solve that particular problem pretty well. It won't be able to do pixel level identification of pedestrians. It won't be able to do compression. It won't be able to do anything that other neural networks can do, but it can solve one narrow problem. That's your hammer for that problem. Being able to have a handful of tools like that for common problems and then being able to have a flowchart. You can say, hey, what is it you're actually trying to do? Um, and be able to to get people to the tools they need to use, I think will be a good practical place for neural networks to get to. Um, it'll get us past the, if you're a company and you want to do machine learning with neural networks, you need to hire someone who's an expert in them because whatever you're going to use is going to be built from scratch. Hmm. Wow, sounds like a, a cheat sheet you need to write up now <laughs> about... <laughs> I'll, I'll put it in case. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're running out of time. Unfortunately, I don't like. I don't have time to ask all the questions. So apologies if we didn't get to your question. I'll just ask one more, which is about the future. Ryan says, uh, 
I know Brandon loves robots. Ask what Brandon sees for the, basically, what's the, the question is, what do you see for the next three to five years in terms of the future of robots? How will they affect our everyday lives? <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> that is my perfect question. Um, so, and I can't claim total credit for this answer. Um, Colin Angle, the CEO of iRobot, has said the same thing, and I think is saying something similar at CES this week. Um, the home will become more of a robot itself. Um, mm. Right now, if you think of a robot as just something that has sensors, information comes in, it makes decisions, has actuators, things that can do things that goes out. Right now, you know, in the home, that's a single vacuum cleaner, a vacuum cleaner and a mop can coordinate, can take turns, the baby mm. step in that direction. But there are so many sensors available in a home. There's thermostats and the potential to add new sensors is huge. And with all that information, then like if I was a vacuum and I knew what time of day it was and I knew what rooms were dark and I knew, um, you know, when, I don't know, like when things tend to stop moving around in a certain room, I can schedule what I'm doing a lot better. And so the whole home kind of becomes like this caretaking system that's a bit like a robot um and that i think is the natural step uh robots for entertainment are you know my best guess is that you know we've seen some companies come and go in that area recently the robots for uh the roombas for vacuuming are are going strong and that application seems to really resonate with folks Things that make life easier in some small but meaningful way, I think, will be the, the direction that we continue to move. But um, again, the best guide I have there are the comments that Colin has made and my own wild guesses. I don't have any inside tracks on that. Okay, very cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. It uh, sounds like <laughs> I'm going to go get myself a Roomba. It <laughs> sounds epic. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know how you like it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'll put, I'll put your photo on top of it. So like every time it comes out, oh, I'll call it Brandon. <laughs> Brandon's up. <laughs> I'm joking, man. I'm joking. Uh, it's just, it's just going to be definitely a reminder of this conversation. Excellent. Um, yeah, well, amazing, amazing chat. Totally, totally loved it. Um, uh, any, any like, comments what what's like what's something you want to wish to the uh thousands of people that are listening to this that uh, have you know taken your courses or have uh, followed you somewhere else on youtube on linkedin on on twitter um anything you'd like to share with them um uh, so i was thinking actually about this uh over the new year i published a post um wishing everyone for the new year th to be able to find a project um not that it's going to like uh, get them a million dollars or get them a bonus, but something that sparks your curiosity, that kind of like grabs your interest and just doesn't let go. And it's not um, not about like what's hot, what's um, what will look good on your resume, but just something that you just can't stop thinking about. Like when you're laying in bed trying to go to sleep, you're like, I wonder how that works. A project like that brings me so much satisfaction that that's my wish for other people working in this area, that they find some interest like that that just grabs their attention and won't let go. Wow, love it. Totally, totally love it. Do you have a project like that yourself? 
Um, I do. My long-term professional hobby is uh, general robot learning algorithms. Mm. Um, there's some stuff on GitHub that's now like some of it's as much as 15 years old, but it's uh, something I continue to work on in the background. Mm. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, well, on that note, Brandon, I just want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. How can our listeners get in touch, contact you, follow you, your career? Of course, uh, where can they find your uh, end-to-end machine learning courses, which sound fantastic. Uh, please share some some links where, where it's best yeah, to find you. Yeah, please look me up uh, on LinkedIn and on Twitter if you're interested in my uh, day-to-day information and, and musings on machine learning. You can always go to e2eml.school. That's the number two, e2eml, for uh, all of the course offerings there, a large number of which are free. Um, and then... Mm. Uh, I'm actually going to be giving, haven't, hasn't been announced yet, going to be giving a full day workshop, Introduction to Deep Learning at ODSC East this year, and uh, a similar workshop at the Southern Data Science Conference in April. And uh, if you're at Southern mm-hmm. Data Science Conference, I'll see you down there because I'm speaking as well. Fantastic. So those are May, April? Uh, all of those are in April this year. Oh, this year, uh, all those in April. Gosh, um, fantastic. And I'm looking at E2E. Uh, so it's E two E the number two in the letter E M L dot school. It's yeah, it's amazing that you have so many free courses, man. That's such such a great way to contribute. Highly recommend for people to check it out. Very exciting. Well, Brandon, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate your time and insights. Had a fantastic chat with you. Learned a lot. Thanks for having me, Kirill. I really enjoyed it. So there you have it, everybody. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. The sheer volume and variety of topics that we covered is incredible. I really enjoyed talking about uh, all of these things with Brandon. And thank you so much for your questions if you posted your questions on LinkedIn at the time. And my personal favorite part was how Brandon follows his passion and how he made a move to a company which allows him to combine his passion for data and his passion for robotics and at the same time make an impact in people's lives that notion of making your everyday everyday day-to-day life a little bit better a little bit um, easier one less thing for you to worry about that is such a noble cause for somebody to putting their time and effort and energy and creativity into helping making our lives better so very exciting as uh, i mentioned i'm really considering getting a Roomba after this conversation and if you'd like to follow brandon make sure to connect with him on linkedin and twitter and as he mentioned he's got um, the machine learning course end-to-end machine learning which you can find at e2eml.school or you can uh, head on over to the show notes, which are at superdatascience.com slash 341. That's superdatascience.com slash 341. There you can find the show notes, transcript for this episode, any materials we mentioned on the podcast, and links to places where you can find Brandon, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and the end-to-end machine learning school. Highly recommend checking out. There's lots of free courses there, which you can take and learn from Brandon directly. And finally, if you know anybody who's interested in the space of machine learning, who could benefit from this conversation, who maybe knows Brandon, has attended his talks or followed him on YouTube, send them this episode, make their day, help spread the knowledge and help other people learn as well. Very easy to share. 
Just send them the link superdayascent.com slash 341. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. Really appreciate your time. And I hope we delivered on the promise of amazing podcasts with machine learning and data science experts and people driving the space forward. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time. Until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>